I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word to our uh, preaching text this morning. It is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. It is on page 807, if you're using the Pew Bible uh, in the rack in front of you. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, we began a sermon series in Matthew's Gospel, looking at the genealogy. Uh, On Christmas Eve, uh, we looked at verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1, and the names of Jesus, son of David, Jesus himself and Emmanuel. This morning we pick up sometime later from where we closed on a Friday night. Uh, Not sure how many months or even years have passed. We pick up Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I believe Matthew, though these are different accounts, he's telling us one combined message in chapter 2 about this king who has come. So, Matthew chapter 2, would you follow along with me, your copy of God's word, beginning at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. Until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed. All the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, 
take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, as we reflect this morning on these texts, both familiar to us and stunning to us in their violence, unfamiliar to us at times in how they use Old Testament scriptures, and yet familiar in ways that can blind us to your truth. And we pray, O God, as we follow along this travel of the child, we will see his gospel. We will see your gospel, the news of why you have come, why you came in human flesh, why you suffered and died and were raised again for our behalf. Lord, speak to us in these few minutes, for we are listening. We we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have lived or visited in Asheville for any period of time, uh, you will recognize that one of the the, the slogans that you see around or you hear all the time in Asheville is to shop local. It's as if it's this sort of moral thing that we do based on where we go shopping and where the items are that we buy are from. We're told to go to shop at local stores and buy handmade goods from somebody nearby. We are encouraged to eat local, to go to restaurants uh, that are run by locals, that bring their food from local farms and local ingredients. And you realize pretty quickly, living in Asheville, that a burger and fries is never just a, a burger and fries, right? <laughs> We've been to restaurants where you just want to order that regular meal, but on the list of the ingredients in the burger is where everything has come from, right? The farm where all the vegetables were grown, the the mom and pop bakery where the loaf of uh, the bun was, was baked. And if you really want to get that local meat, it's from Hickory Nut Gap Farm, right? I mean, that's the, that's the local place on all of these menus. And the waiters will make sure to tell you where everything has come from in case you missed it on your menu. So you can appreciate that what you thought was a burger and fries is much more than just a burger and fries. The author of this book, Matthew, is a little bit like that waiter. And he is telling us what you thought was just a nativity scene is a whole lot more than just a nativity scene. And he's going to point out and take us on a tour of all of the places that the things have come from that show us who this child is. For your Asheville waiter, the key word is local. For Matthew, however, the key word is fulfilled or fulfilled. Five times Matthew references scripture in the Old Testament. Once we saw on, uh, on Christmas Eve, Friday night, uh, with quoting from uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7. Uh, this morning, we will see four other 
passages, or really three plus a reference, we'll get to that final one, in which Matthew brings this idea of fulfillment to us. And he is showing us in every way he can how this child fulfills the Old Testament, fulfills every hope of the Old Testament, so that what you thought was just a regular nativity scene is so much more. But it's not just so you see something neat. Matthew wants you as the people of God, you who have maybe never encountered Christ to see him for the first time and to learn that not only does he fulfill the hopes of the Old Testament, he fulfills every hope of our own weary hearts. That's what I want you to see this morning. This child fulfills every hope of the Old Testament and so fulfills every hope of our weary hearts. We're going to follow Matthew, our waiter, and he's going to show us four ingredients. He's going to take us to four different places where these pieces come from that show us who this child is. First, in verses 1 to 12, we're going to see royalty from Bethlehem. So there's our first ingredient, our first component, royalty. And where does this royalty come from? It comes from Bethlehem. These first uh, 12 verses are very familiar. I'm sure you have read them at some point over the last couple weeks. Uh, You are familiar with this tension between the the child who has come and the ruler of the day, Herod. Now Matthew makes it clear to us by using the word king in verse 1 to refer to Herod and in verse 2 to to refer to this child that it's as if he is presenting to us a battle between these two kings. There is the the king who is currently on the throne, and there is the king who is trying to usurp his throne. And Herod thinks he's the one on the throne, but as we read this, we read, no, he's actually the usurper. (laughs) The true king is the one who has arrived in the manger. Herod is the king. He has been appointed by Rome over this region, he has sort of a, a, a I was going to say a love-hate. It's not a love-hate. It's a hate-hate relationship uh, with uh, those under him. He's violent. Uh, he is somewhat unstable. Uh, he has some, some good sort of planning things he institutes in this region. Uh, but ultimately, he puts to death members of his own family because he suspects them. He is jealous of them. If you want this child to survive, this is sort of the worst possible king into whose reign he should be born. He is identified in verse 2 as the king of the Jews. This whole chapter only uses the name Jesus once in the beginning. The rest of the time, he's simply the child. Sort of highlighting for us, from an earthly perspective, how vulnerable he is to the violence and the aggression of this king. We learn he is the king of the Jews because of uh, these uh, strange people who show up, the magi, or the wise men, or they're called kings in the song, We Three Kings. It doesn't appear there's actually three of them, or that they're even kings in the first place. Maybe they're magicians. Uh, The one thing that's clear is they're foreigners, right? They come from somewhere else. They come from the east to Jerusalem because they have identified 
something incredible is happening in Jerusalem, in the the Jewish leader's own backyard that they themselves seem oblivious to. Now, I am not going to give you any explanation about this star because I don't know what's going on. (laughs) There's some sort of star that they see, it guides them, and then later on it sort of leads them in in an amazing sense. It seems as if they may have been familiar with a passage in the book of Numbers that says that a star shall come out of Jacob. Maybe they're familiar with that, that they see a prophecy that the own scribes and wise men in that town don't even see. This announcement, this arrival of these visitors from the east, verse 3 tells us that Herod the king heard this and he was troubled. He was troubled. It also tells us that all Jerusalem with him was troubled. I think this may be referring to sort of the, the leadership class, the authorities of the day, right? The news of that another king has come. That does not make those who are in power happy. They are troubled at this news of a king. I mean, we read in Mark's gospel, chapter 15, over and over again, he is the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. And this is unsettling, to put it mildly. For the leaders of the day. There is a pattern over and over in scripture. And that is that earthly rulers are threatened by this king. They still are threatened by him, quite frankly. Herod asks the priest, the chief priest and the scribe, what are going on? And they, they know exactly what's going on. He asks them where this child will be. And they say in Bethlehem. They know the prophecy. We read the prophet Micah on Friday night, and here is Matthew telling us that that prophet from hundreds, I mean, from a thousand years ago is now coming true in their own midst. Matthew does not use in this section the word fulfill that he will use three other times in chapter two. He will use it a number of other times in his gospel. Clearly he is showing us without using the word that this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Now, why does it matter? Why is this significant at all? Well, in one sense, it's significant because God can make a promise and fulfill that promise. God can go back hundreds of years and speak through his own mouthpiece to declare the very physical location where this child will be born. And lo and behold, these many years later, that's where he's born. It shows us, amongst other things, the sovereignty of God. The one who can control through the ages and through the generations and through the centuries and bring about the birth of his own son in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is also significant because it is the city of David. So it is significant that this one who has come, the one who was adopted by Joseph, who is a son of David, who of himself is said in Matthew chapter 1, multiple times he is a son of David. He is now born in the city of David. This is the fulfillment of an even older prophecy. In Genesis chapter 49, where Judah's blessing says, the scepter shall not depart from him. He is the the ancestor of King David, who is then the ancestor of King Jesus. What is significant here 
is that he is born in Bethlehem and he is the king. He is not to be king. He is not to become king. He's not to wait until the king dies to begin his own reign. The text tells us who has been born king of the Jews. He's already the king. He's an infant, toddler king. Now, before we move on to the second ingredient, we need to see how the people in this text responded to this announcement. There are three responses we see here. The first response comes from the religious leaders, the ones who know the prophecy, the one who see the, prof- the, the, the prophecy is fulfilled in their own backyard. And what do they do? They don't do anything. They do absolutely nothing. The first response we see in this text to the arrival of the king is indifference. In fact, we might say it's boredom. They know the prophecy and they don't care. They can't be moved. This miracle of this star, they can't be bothered to go follow it. Isn't this true for us today? That many in the religious community are indifferent to Jesus. We know God's word. We can memorize it. We can recognize where a prophecy may be fulfilled in him. But when it comes to actually living our life in light of that, we are indifferent. We are bored with Jesus. That's the first response of the religious leaders of the day. The second response is that of Herod himself who said he wants to worship the child. Nobody believes this, right? Even when it happens, no one believes this. His response is not worship. His response is hostility. We'll see this more in a moment. But he is threatened. He is threatened by this king, and he wants to get him out and away, and we'll see, even put him to death, so that he can keep his own authority and power and strength. We are fine with Jesus as long as he doesn't threaten us and how we want to live. There's indifference, there's hostility, and then there's a third response. Look at verse 10, the response of the Magi. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We don't talk this way. This is saying a lot, a lot of joy, right? They're bursting with joy and rejoicing and praise, and they go and they fall down, and they worship him. I mean, shame on the people of God that the foreign strangers had to come in and be the one to show us how to respond to Jesus. It's as if the people of God are sleepwalking through the miracle happening in their own midst, and they are shamed by these foreign rejoicers and worshipers from afar. I think Matthew is asking us the question, how do you respond to the arrival of the king? Is it hostility? Do you want nothing to do with him? You're here at church this morning, the day after Christmas, so I sort of doubt that's where you are, although you may be in your heart. 
The real threat to us in the church is utter indifference. We can cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's, but when it comes to a a heart that resounds in joy and worship at Jesus, that sounds kind of boring. The Magi show us the route. They show us the way. They invite us. They invite us to die to our indifference and our hostility and to come and see the king for who he is, to bow and worship him in faith. Royalty comes from Bethlehem in our first 12 verses. The second ingredient in our text, the second stop on Matthew's journey is redemption. And redemption comes of all places from Egypt. Verses 13 to 15. Redemption from Egypt. The Magi are warned in a dream, so they depart. They don't go back to Herod. Joseph is warned in a dream, so he doesn't go back to Herod. He flees to Egypt in order to be safe, to keep the child protected until this hostile king dies. And Matthew tells us why. I mean, of all the places he could have gone, why Egypt? Well, verse 15, this was to, here's our key word, fulfill what the Lord had spoken of the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, this quote takes some explaining. Number one, it comes from the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea is not happy with God's people. The prophet of Hosea is sent to an unfaithful people to speak to them of God's faithfulness. That's the context. And as Hosea is reciting for the people the faithfulness of God, he comes in chapter 11 to the greatest act of God's faithfulness, and that is redemption out of Egypt. That God brings his people out of Egypt. Now, what's fascinating about Hosea, it's not a prophecy. It's a prophet, but it's not a prophecy. He is looking back at what God has done. And Matthew, if I were to do this in the sermon, y'all would think I was crazy. Matthew looks back at something that's happened that wasn't a prophecy at the time. And he says, look, it's a prophecy. It is fulfilled in your midst right now. How can he do that? How can he do that? Well, he is simply following Jesus. Jesus is the one who says that all the things in Scripture are fulfilled concerning him. The first prophecy fulfilled is a direct prophecy in Bethlehem. So the child is born in Bethlehem. This is not a direct prophecy. It's what we would call a pattern. It is a a prophetic pattern. It is something that happens, a pattern in the Old Testament that Jesus repeats or goes through in his own life. So we look at this pattern in the Old Testament. The first one to go down to Egypt was not actually the the Israelites. It was Abraham. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12? There's a famine, and so he goes down to Egypt to be protected from the famine. And then at the end of Genesis, it's Joseph who goes down to Egypt 
Joseph the dreamer, and here we have another Joseph led by all these dreams. And now a third time, the child goes down to Egypt. He's following in the footsteps of Abraham and then of Israel. And the prophet speaks of Israel coming out of Egypt as my son. Now, women and men in Israel were called the daughters and sons of God. But together, Israel is called the son of God. Israel is treated as a, a corporate body, as one people, as the son. And so Matthew is saying this is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the son. But here's the difference. Israel as the son is a mess. Israel is always living in rebellion and disobeying God. This is the the context of the prophet Hosea. Now comes a child who is not the rebellious son, but is rather the righteous son. And Matthew's showing us Jesus and saying it's as if the entire nation of Israel is now in one person. And that one person walks the same path as Israel. Except he doesn't stumble. He doesn't trip. He doesn't go astray. Right? He is not the rebellious child. He is the righteous child. Some of you will remember uh, the movie Groundhog Day. And the movie Groundhog Day is about uh, a man who wakes up every day, and every day is the same day. And it happens to be Groundhog Day. And he lives the same day over and over and over again. And he sort of goes into despair. And then towards the end of the movie, he realizes he can do good on this day. And he starts fake because he knows everything's going to happen. So he can help somebody not fall in the puddle. Or he can, he can help somebody, you know, buy their groceries, whatever it is. He's, he, he turns this day into this pattern of his own righteousness until he sort of lives the day perfectly. The Old Testament is sort of like Groundhog Day for the people of God. Except they never learn to live the day perfectly. They keep following the same patterns. They keep falling into the same sins. They go down to Egypt and God has to bring them back up. Now goes the Christ, the child. He gets it right. He lives the perfect day. He goes where they have failed. And he brings it. He redeems it in his own righteousness. This is the gospel. The gospel is not look at the Old Testament, look at the people in the Bible and try to be like them. That's not it. The gospel is not look at the people in the Old Testament, the people in the Bible and learn from them and don't do what they do wrong and just do the right thing. No, the gospel is neither of those things. It is look at the mess that God's people got themselves in and look at Christ who is perfectly and righteously lived in all the ways that they fail, in all the ways that you have failed. And if you were to follow that same path, you would trip and fall and go astray just like them. But here is the righteous child in whom we believe, in whom we trust, in whom there is redemption from Egypt. That is Matthew's second ingredient for us this morning. Redemption out of Egypt. That exodus is one of the greatest events in the Old Testament, but there's one more. And that's the the third ingredient he gives us in verses 16 to 18. And this is return, the return 
And for this, he goes with God's people into exile. Verses 16 to 18. Return from exile. Here we finally see Herod's brutal response to not finding the child king who is a threat to his throne. And so he goes to Bethlehem and he puts all of these male children to death. This has been called the slaughter of the innocents. There's some hope that maybe Bethlehem was small enough at the time that there weren't too many of these young male children. But one is, is more than enough, isn't it, to grieve and to mourn over this death. It is actually an, an echo of Exodus chapter 1 and Pharaoh uh, putting those little boys to death. Matthew again identifies in verse 17 a prophecy. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This time he actually uses sort of a, pass, a passive sense to that verb. It's as if he's sort of softening the truth that God is sovereign even on the darkest days with his people. And what he does is he shows us how this event parallels the exile. Now, the exile is a later on period in the history of the people of God when they have rebelled again and gone astray and God brings in a foreign nation to discipline them and to defeat them such that they are now dragged out of the promised land, out of their home, and exiled away from their land. It is the darkest moment in the Old Testament. The prophet Matthew quotes from is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is writing about the exile of the children of Israel through this town called Ramah. Ramah is is the first stop out of Jerusalem on the way into exile. I mean, this is a real-life trail of tears as the children are led into exile. And Rachel, long dead, the Rachel who was the wife of Jacob, is listed here as the one who is weeping because Ramah was where she was buried. And so it is as if she is representing the mothers of Israel weeping as their children are dragged off into exile. She is personifying, as it were, all of Israel's grief. So the people of God are weeping that their children, maybe not slaughtered like Herod does, but are taken off into exile. This removal and defeat of Jerusalem is the lowest moment in the Old Testament. I mean, it is. There's a whole book written about it, the book of Lamentations. And here, Matthew tells us that is fulfilled in Herod putting these young boys to death. To figure out what in the world Matthew is telling us, we need to go back and look at Jeremiah in context. Here's what Jeremiah writes in chapter 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping 
and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your children, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In the darkest moment in the Old Testament is this shining promise of a return. Here is the pattern of the exile. The pattern of the people of God going into exile. It didn't start there in Jeremiah's day. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. And and they were kicked out of the garden. Thus put into exile. And Israel sent out and put into exile. And here is the Christ, the child. And Matthew is telling us this prophecy is fulfilled in him as he goes off into exile. And he will follow that same pattern and he goes to the cross. Outside of the gate. Outside of the town. Outside of the place of the people of God to his death. But there is hope because he will return. And the people will return with the return of Christ. And there is life after death. And Rachel weeping and Israel weeping and those who mourn today weeping will have their tears wiped away in the return from exile. This is what Matthew is showing us in this child as he is led away and as all of Israel weeps and mourns. The promise That he will return. It's that pattern of going outside of Israel in order to come back. That we see highlighted in the fourth and final stop on Matthew's tour. Our fourth ingredient is the ingredient of rejection. Where do we find rejection? We find rejection from the city of Nazareth. Verses 19 to 23. King Herod dies, as do every, as does every king that sets themselves against this king. But the child survives, he comes back. He doesn't go back to uh, Judea. He is warned, his father Joseph, in a dream that Herod's son is there and he's not going to put up with uh, a rival king either. And so Joseph goes north with his family. Uh, to the district of Galilee, to a city called Nazareth. Again, there are parallels here to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, who has to flee, and then he comes back when it is safe for him to return to Egypt. Now, what confuses commentators is Matthew's final line in chapter 2, where he says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, you might notice in your Bible, there's no footnote there that tells you the Old Testament text that Matthew was quoting. Why not? Well, because there is no Old Testament text. (laughs) There is no prophecy that says that the child, that the Christ, that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. So what in the world is going on here? Did Matthew just sort of miss that day at school and sort of make up this prophet we've never heard of? Well, the problem is he says by the prophets, there's not some missing prophet. He acts like there's multiple prophets who are telling this to us. 
Well, we can't find it in any of the prophets. Here are some options. Option number one uh, is that Jesus is sort of the fulfillment of those who take a Nazarite vow. This is a vow in the Old Testament for those who are sort of set apart. And that maybe this is telling us that he went to Nazareth in order to be set apart. The problem is there isn't really a prophecy that says that. uh, Nor is it even, even though it sounds like the same word, Nazarite and Nazarene are not the same word. Another option is to look in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, who tells us uh, that a root from Jesse will come. And the Hebrew word root sounds a whole lot like the word Nazarene or Nazareth. So maybe that is sort of a a veiled prophecy there in using the, the same root word or sounds like the same word. Neither of them are convincing for me. I think Matthew's telling us something even broader. I think he's not telling us particularly that he would be called a Nazarene. I think he's telling us that he's going to go outside or to the outskirts of the people in the place of God. Do you remember in John's gospel when Nathan is told about this Messiah who has come and he's told that he has come from the city of Nazareth and Nathan says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like it's the backwoods town. It's where the the country bumpkins are, right? I was trying to think of an illustration of a place around here that's like Nazareth, but I I wasn't sure who was going to be here this morning, so I I didn't want to say your favorite hometown. It's a place where nothing good comes from. It's the outsiders. It's the trash. Nobody cares about Nazareth. Nothing good could ever come out of Nazareth. And what better place for our Messiah to go than to start in Nazareth? What does the Old Testament tell us about this Messiah in multiple prophets? It tells us he will be abhorred by the nation. It tells us he will be despised. They tell us he will be rejected. They tell us he will be scorned. They tell us he'll be forsaken. They tell us that he will be cut off. There is a clear Old Testament expectation of a Messiah who is a suffering servant. Not part of the inside ruling class of the day. But an outsider. One who is humbled. One who is rejected. A disregarded hometown for a disregarded Messiah. The child goes outside of the seat of power in order to stand with the outsiders, with the poor, with the uneducated. As we saw last week in the genealogy of Jesus, with the women who rarely get a mention, with the Samaritans, with the Gentiles. He goes to Nazareth to be rejected. And it is his rejection he might bring about the redemption of his people. Matthew, the waiter, gives us all four ingredients. He tells us of the rich ingredients, the royalty, the redemption. He tells us there's some bitter ingredients too. The return from exile and the rejection from Nazareth. This is the tour 
And the journey is not over yet. In fact, this trail is more like a preview of what is to come. Have you ever put in your smartphone, your Google Maps, Googled where you want to go, you've put in the address and you've hit get directions or start journey or whatever it is, and the route comes up and instead of green or blue for a clear, smooth sailing, it's covered in red and maroon. That's the really bad one. It means nothing's moving. And there's wrecks and there's detours. It's going to take be a long time to get there. That is what Matthew is telling us is the path of this child. It is colored in red. The red of rejection, the red of suffering, the red of crucifixion, the red of his burial. I began asking you if you are ready and willing to worship this royal king. Well, here's a harder question. Are you ready and willing to worship the rejected king? The crucified king. The king of the Jews. This child fulfills every hope of the Old Testament. Worship him today that he may fulfill every hope of your weary hearts. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we are unfamiliar with this path. We have tasted it but a bit in following you, but we, we do not know what this rejection is like. We do not know fully the, the grief and the weeping over exile. But we rejoice and worship you today that as our king, you have come and you have walked the path for us, that you might lift us up on the road to redemption and carry us home. And as we close tonight, oh God, I pray that your spirit would enter every one of our hearts and that you would shatter the hostility with which we view your son, that you would humble us. Lord, I pray for the spiritually indifferent this morning. We pray for those who play the part on the outside, but there is nothing on the inside. Humble and break us and show us again or maybe for the first time the grace and the glory of Christ, that we might believe upon him and be saved this very day. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.